welcome to your weekly Biker News Wrap-Up. This story by Sean Emery. The Mongols probation means headquarters of the motorcycle club is subject to search. Not riders on the street, the judge says. That sucks. Federal judge clarifies condition of probation for the outlaw motorcycle club. A federal judge on Friday, June 28th, made clear that his decision to place the notorious Mongols motorcycle club on probation means the headquarters for the outlaw organization mothership chapter is fair game for random search by probation officers not individual bikers themselves mothership what is that u.s district judge david o'carter in may ordered the mongols organization to pay a five hundred thousand dollar fine and to serve five years on supervised probation after a Santa Ana jury found that the Southern California-based club itself, rather than specific members, was guilty of racketeering. The first of its kind legal battle was part of a decade-plus effort by federal law enforcement to seize control of the model's prize patches which depict an illustration of a smiling ponytailed Genghis Khan type motorcycle rider. The Santa Ana jury agreed that the government should be able to control or be, should be able to take control of the patches and trademark. But Judge Carter overrode that uh, portion of the verdict ruling it would be unconstitutional. Since Carter's decision Law enforcement agencies from across the country have reached out to federal probation officials to ask what the terms of the Mongols organization's probation means for their efforts to police individual writers. You all knew that was coming. Prosecutors told the judge, I have no problem searching the mother chapter. That is where you found the guns. Carter told prosecutors, but this isn't a wholesale warrant without probable cause to search anyone on the street. Yeah, see where this is going? Man, oh man. But before the government can search the Mongols headquarters, they are going to have to come back to court and tell the judge where it actually is. <laughs> Keep it moving, guys. Court filings have referred to a location in West Corbina, but prosecutors on Friday noted that is a reference to the former home of Ruben Doc Caveos, a former president of the Mongols who was kicked out of the club. It's good. <laughs> prosecutors didn't immediately provide the judge with a new address for the club's current headquarters, just telling him it is not in West Covina. The Mongols was originally formed in Montebello in the 1970s. The legal battle over the Mongols patch is almost certain to make its way before the Ninth Circuit of Appeals, which they did file for that. And likely the U.S. Supreme Court, Carter is allowing the club to pay their $500,000 fine in monthly installments so that they still can afford to fund the expected appeals. Well, if it's appealing, why do they have to pay the fine? The case stemmed from Operation Black Rain, an undercover investigation in which law enforcement agents infiltrated the Mongols. A separate, earlier court case against specific Mongol members led to 77 people pleading guilty to racketeering-related charges. Now, Again, they did file the Ninth Court uh, 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 Circuit Appeals. In the most recent trial, the Mongols, as an organization, were found to have part have taken part in drug trafficking, vicious assaults, and even murder. Much of the violence was tied to a long-running rivalry between the Mongols and the Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club, and led to attacks, some fatal, in bars and restaurants. In Pasadena, Hollywood, Merce, La Murda, William, Williamington, and Riverside. 
Attorneys representing the current leadership of the Mongols had blamed the violence on Cavazos and his crew, who they note are no longer involved in the club. Which they ain't. They kicked him to the curb. He went and ratted. Next, Sturgis, South Dakota. The city of Sturgis stands firm. The 80th Motorcycle Rally will be Friday, August 7th through Sunday, August 16th, 2020. So mark your calendars, guys. In a release, the city put to rest the confusion over the official start date for the rally. All rallies for that matter, they said. In a release Wednesday, the city put out uh, to rest uh, confusion again over the start of the rally. You know, they always repeat themselves in these stories. Sturgis in 2016 standardized the rally start date. All that time, the city determined that all future Sturgis rallies would begin on the first Friday of August and would run for 10 days. The key words are first Friday of August. You see how the city took over the rally? Many venues and tour companies publicized the 80th rally as starting July 31st. This assumption comes from the fact that the rally traditionally started the first full week of August, and with the addition of the Friday before being added as an official rally day. It seemed to make sense that July 31st, 2020 would be the start. But this is happens when the government gets involved, so I don't know why you guys go there. What many people forgot about was the first official day has to be in August next year is the first time since 2016 that the Friday before the full, full uh, week of uh, August is in the same month. The first Friday rule was instituted to keep the rally from creeping too far into the main tourism season. I didn't even know that. I am going to go there. According to Sturgis City Manager Daniel Eisley, before the change, people in the tourism industry voiced concerned about the rally starting in July during the prime family season of tourism. Without that rally, your little Sturgis ain't nothing. Rush No More RV Resort and Campground owner Edward Miller is disappointed with the August 7th start date because he has already booked a couple of dozen customers at his campground. He said you just can't tell customers to change their plans. Well, that's what happens when you guys let the city of Sturgis take over the rally. You can't ask people who are coming from Europe or the Far East to change their flight reservations and everything. I mean, I guess you can ask them, but they'll pay a penalty and we would have to pay a penalty. Miller said, this is the uh, campground owner. Miller said by starting later in the month, it will end up hurting the city's revenue and all we know it's about the city's revenue. He said some children may start school in mid-August, which could lead to fewer people attending the rally. Personally, I think nobody should go to that stupid rally, but that's just me. However, Miller said several business owners, including himself, are thinking about just sticking with their own schedules despite the official date. Yeah, I think you should. Who cares what the city has to say? Party it up. Anyway, Randy Lebo, the Ohio Senate balked at mandates in a house pass budget to provide and this one pisses me off workers compensation for first responders diagnosed with PTSD and to make sure all injured workers declare their immigration status with those and other policy measures stripped from the bill the Senate voted unanimously Thursday to approve the budget of the Ohio Bureau of Workers Compensation which is funded by employer premiums but here's where it gets messed up but minutes later House Speaker Larry Householder said his chamber will not concur with the Senate passed bill requiring a conference committee to reach an agreement the Glenn Ford Republican said he has prepared an amendment to extend the workers' compensation existing budget for another 90 days. The current two-year budget expires Sunday. They pulled all of our language out, Householder said. 
pointing in particular to post-traumatic stress disorder being covered for first responders. This is an issue in the state that's had been debated for a number of years. I don't think there is any more debate to be had. You know what, first responders, they need to get what they need to get. He also was displeased with the Senate killing provisions to move, uh, more clearly distinguish independent contractors from employees. Senate President Larry Oboff of uh, Medina indicated he personally supports PTSD coverage for police officers, firefighters, and others, even not accompanied by physical industry. For developing a psychiatric disorder after experiencing or witnessing a traumatic event on the job. However, the Senate wants more time to study the issue and other provisions passed by the House as part of the workers' comp budget, which would increase 5% to $319. Uh, no, not $18, uh, $319 million, my fault, beginning Monday, and uh, $324 million the following year. <laughs> oh, my God. The Fraternal Order of Police of Ohio said it was disappointed and would continue to fight for the PTSD language. The FOP and other groups have long lobbied to gain PTSD co uh, coverage for medical bills and wage replacement through workers' compensation, but hey, lawmakers don't care. They don't need it. State retirement funds grant disability benefits to public employees for PTSD on a case-by-case -case basis. Unreal. If a police officer breaks his leg carrying an injured child to safety, Workers' Comp is there to help him heal, the Ohio FOP said in a prior statement. If that same child dies a painful death in the officer's arms and the officer isn't otherwise injured, there is no help for the officer to uh, process and cope. That, uh, you know what? That's messed up. The House budget drew the ear of Democrats for moving to require those uh, filing injury claims to listen to their citizenship and, or list their citizenship and immigration status and reveal whether they were an undocumented worker. Falsifying such information would have constituted criminal workers' compensation fraud. The Senate has balked at such language before. You always notice how they're defending illegals other than their own citizens. Jesus, give it up. The Senate also voted 32 to 1 on Friday to send a bill to the House that removes utility knives, box cutters, and similar sharp instruments from the definition of deadly weapons, allowing them to be carried and concealed by trade workers and others who regularly... <laughs> My God, they doing that too? use them on the job. The bill also would repeal a state prohibition against the manufacture and sale of spring-loaded knives such as switchblades and other devices such as brass knuckles and similar weapons. Anything to disarm the public, let me tell you. But you know what? Our first responders deserve their damn shit. Anyway, Richard Dupree, the Motley Fool, and you're going to want to listen to this one. Harley Davidson is cruising back into this, uh, uh, the market for the first time in three years with a collateral pool possibly worth as much as $658 million because the asset-backed securities feature high ratings from Moody's Investor Services and Finch Ratings and the loans being scrutinized have high FICO scores. It looks as if the motorcycle maker is dealing a hand from strength that should find a ready market. When riders are buying Harleys, they're extending the payments out as far as possible to afford them. Yeah, it's like a second mortgage. It really is. You get a Harley, it's a second mortgage. Ugh. The security process of bundling individual assets together into a group and then selling partial interest into the entire pool of assets, one that many people are familiar with is, again, mortgages, just like I said. Harley-Davidson is bundling together the loans or leases that buyers have taken out on its motorcycles 
and it is selling them to investors for upfront money or upfront payments instead of collecting the monthly note amount itself over the life of the loan. This is very, very bad, people. Very, very bad. That says it gives Arley an opportunity to move some debt off of its balance sheet and open up uh, its liquid assets. However, these loans with long original loan terms and the bike's company financial arm has seen its delinquency rates and loss rates start to rise as the market for new motorcycles remains depressed and used bike prices are soft. Yep, 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 it's coming to bear, let me tell you people. Although that this uh, seems to be a net positive for Harley-Davidson, the other uh, underlying trends it highlights suggests is still facing difficult times. According to a pre-sale report from Moody's, the pools of securities had loans with an average balance of over $15,800, a weighted average Bauer or FICO scores of 757, and an average APR of 6.64%. The total value of the loans is well above the $302 million mark. Harley did the last time it was in the market in 2016, and FICO scores are higher too. There has, however, been a slight increase in the average length of the original loan terms from 70 months to 71 months, with less than 2% of the loans having under four years remaining. Well, yeah, you got to bring your loans out because you can't afford the damn bikes. They're too expensive. The problem is that a six-year loan is a very long time for a motorcycle because it indicates the buyers can't readily come up with a down payment to lower the principal. Instead, they're extending the terms to reduce their monthly payments. It results in paying much more for the motorcycle over the repayment period. Well, we all know that. And it also means the buyer owes a lot more than the bike is worth for an extended period of time. That's why you always buy used, man. Don't buy these new bikes. Buy them used. Loans in the pool from 61 months to 72 months account for 36% of the total, while 73 to 84 months, 7 years, make up 28%. So even uh, well-qualified buyers are extending payments well out to the future. Oh, Harley in a mess as always, in a mess as always. That's what that company is. If you're looking for up-to-date biker news, then Insane Throttle is the place to be. Daily editorials and news that is dedicated to the biker scene. Come on over and join the number one internet biker news site at HarleyLiberty.com. Hi, this is John with Exit 27, and you're listening to Hollywood on Motorcycle Madhouse. Want to hear more of our music? Head on over to Spotify or iTunes. The number one internet biker radio show is now available on Spotify and all major platforms, including iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Don't forget to become a subscriber on any one of these platforms so you can be notified right away when our weekly episode is uploaded so you never miss an episode. Let's go. 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 Carlin Dunn dies in the Pikes Peak Kill Climb by Andrew McClellan. Peaks Pike, Colorado. Motorcyclist Carlin Dunny has died after a crash during the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. Dunny was 36, was just short of the finish line when the crash happened. Ambulance left the summit right after the crash and took Dunny down the mountain. At about 3.40 p.m., Ducati issued a statement saying Dunny passed away. Our thoughts are with his family. The crash happened at about 10.30 a.m. There are no words to describe our shock and sadness. Carlin was part of our family and one of the most genuine and kind men we have ever known. His spirit for this event and love of motorcycling will be remembered forever as his passing leaves a hole in our hearts, said Jason Chinook, CEO of Ducati North America. It's not clear yet what led to the crash. Dunny had won the motorcycle's division in four previous hill climbs, and his qualifying time for the 2019 running was the fastest in his division. 
He was largely expected to take the top finishing time for motorcycles. He had given an interview to CNN this week about his quest for his fifth title. Dunny's death is the seventh in the history of the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. So sad, so sad. Ruby Gonzalez, the trial of a San Gabriel man accused in the 2014 fatal shooting of a Panama SWAT officer ended in a hung jury on Friday, June 28th. After deliberating for nearly a week, jurors acquitted 41-year-old David Martinez of first-degree murder, but deadlocked on second-degree murder with three voting guilty and nine voting not guilty. Police officer Sean Diamond, 45, was shot on October 28, 2014, while he helped serve a search warrant in the 100 block of San Marino Avenue in San Gabriel. He died the next day of his injuries. Martinez testified at trial that he fired a warning shot at what he thought were fellow Mongols members trying to break into his home. Joy Diamond, who is the mother of the slain officer, declined to comment on the verdict, but volunteer victims advocate Tina Yamashiro said Joy Diamond was devastated. We are disappointed with the outcome. The police chief, uh, Michael Elveri, said, but not disappointed at all with the professional work done by the LA County District Attorney's Office and the homicide detectives from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department who have all worked tirelessly on this case. He goes on to say, we are hopeful there will be a retrial, he said, which everybody knows there's going to be. The decision on whether to retry Martinez will be made at a later date, said Los Angeles County District Attorney spokesman Greg Reisling. It wasn't clear if Deputy D uh, District Attorney Jock Garden or Deputy Public Defender Brady Sullivan asked the jurors why they voted how they did. Garden declined comment while Sullivan could not be reached. Our office declines further comment, Risling said. Superior Court Judge Charlene F. Alamato ordered Martinez to return July 11th to the Clara Sortridge Fultz Criminal Justice Center in downtown Los Angeles for a hearing on motions in the case. On the day Diamond was shot, a multi-agency operation targeting the Mongols Motorcycle Club was serving seven warrants. The SWAT, which was not part of the task force, was asked to serve the warrant at Martinez's home. The prosecution said police announced their present and stated they had a search warrant. Diamond and Sergeant Richard Aguilar were assigned to breach the screen door, and they did, using two tools. Diamond, who was holding one of the tools, had his back turned to the doorway when Martinez's father, Artero, opened the front door. Martinez fired a 12-gauge shotgun, hitting his father in the arm and Diamond in the back of the neck. The slug severed Diamond's spine, and damaged his jaw and tongue. They go on to say the defendant shot Officer Sean Diamond while his back was to the defendant, while Officer Diamond's gun was in his holster. When Officer Diamond was walking away from the defendant, Garden said during closing arguments, Officer Diamond posed no threat to the defendant, zero threat. After the shooting, Martinez apologized to the officers and entered the house and said he thought it was fellow Mongols members at the door. I kept saying I was sorry. Martinez testified at trial. I didn't know it was the police. I thought it was the Mongols. I would have never fired at a police officer or law enforcement officer ever. 
I have family that's in law enforcement. Sullivan argued that the shooting was self-defense. Martinez saw what he thought was the barrel of a rifle pointed at his father and fired a shot to protect him. Sullivan said, David acted to defend his family. He said Martinez, who was in the back bedroom, did not hear the police announcements but heard the loud banging made by other officers trying to force open a gate. He added the family dogs were also barking. Martinez wanted out of the Mongols, was at odds with some members, heard about the freeway shootings involving Mongols, and had interpreted a text he received as a threat. This again according to Sullivan, his attorney. The prosecution doubted Martinez's statement that he did not see Diamond. Garden pointed out that there was a light on the porch and that the officer stood six feet tall, two inches, and wore a green uniform with the word police on the back. He goes on to say, are we going to give the defendant a pass? Is this his free murder? Garden asked. How do you not see Officer Diamond with the light on? Well, it's pretty easy. The prosecution also argued that Martinez was a liar who changed his story dependent on the audience. At the Montebello jail, Martinez told a fellow Mongols member he shot an officer in the face because the officer blasted his father, Garden said. Wonder how they found that out. Martinez then said he didn't fire the shotgun during a November 7, 2014 phone call to his mother and another relative, according to the prosecution. In 2015, Martinez told a friend that his public defender wanted to call the shooting self-defense. The prosecutor said. Garden said Martinez lied about fearing the Mongols and said the San Gabriel man remains a member of the group. He said the Mongols' national president and other members deposited money in Martinez's inmate account in county jail. Garden also played phone calls between Martinez and Mongols members that occurred while Martinez was in county jail. You guys do know they record everything. <laughs> really, they record everything, these people in jails. Anyway... Chris Young, Harley Davidson, has announced plans to develop a new low-displacement model motorbike that will be offered in China by the end of 2020. The new model is a 338cc water-cooled parallel twin scrambler that will be co-developed with the Chinese motorcycle company. It's a 338cc. The Harley-Davidson and the Chinese company uh, premium 338cc displacement Harley-Davidson motorcycle will first go on sale in China with other Asian markets to follow after. The famous American motorcycle company chose China based on its established supply system and its experience in developing premium small displacement motorcycles. The collaboration is part of Harley-Davidson's More Roads growth plans that they hope will see the motorcycle company grow its international business by 50% of annual volume by 2027. The company hopes this move will also see more customers opt for their more traditional models, as well as the new displacement Chinese model that will be offered. Quote, our more roads plan is all about bringing our brand of freedom to more people <laughs> in China, in more places, in more ways, the CEO said. Uh, he's so full of crap. Harley Davidson told Motopinus.com. We're excited about this opportunity to build more Harley riders in China. One of the world's largest motorcycle markets by creating new pathways to our brand. 
a two-way street. The general manager of the Chinese company also voiced his satisfaction with the partnership. Probably because you're going to steal the technology. We are pleased to collaborate with Harley-Davidson. <laughs> we have proven manufacturing capability and experience in China, and we are committed to improving the experience of motorcycling for riders in Asia. The new displacement model will be manufactured at the facility in China. It will be put through the same testing processes and will adhere to the same quality standards that Harley-Davidson motorbikes are famous for. <laughs> I don't even want to go there, guys. <laughs> oh, finally, Ben Clark. Bike thieves are openly selling stolen vehicles on social media accounts, with some even taunting their alleged victims. A group called Weston Repo Guys have been stealing bikes in the Weston Supermar area before posting pictures on Instagram. The account, which has since been made private, claimed that the group repossessed neglected bikes and invited victims to smile if they saw their bike listed. Referring to theft as repossession is a growing theme on social media with countless repo gang style accounts on Instagram alone. An account named Repogan, for example, claims to offer stolen vehicles for sale in one such post. A 2015 Kawasaki ZXCR is shown and another Instagram user has asked if the bike is cordy, meaning stolen, we had to ask a young person to translate. And Repagon confirms it is. Another Cordy bike offered for sale on the account is a 1999 Yamaha R1 purportedly stolen from South Wales and offered for 500 euro. But things may not be entirely as they seem. A Honda CFR or a CRF250 listed by this account was actually listed as a stolen in Canada by Facebook user Tanya Van Allen Wright. Several other vehicles are listed using an image originally posted by the victim rather than a new image. So it is unclear whether Repogain actually has possession of these vehicles at all. A surprising amount of interest is taken nowadays by police and social media sites. Dr. Ken German, a motorcycle crime expert, told MCN. These sites offer opportunities to identify thieves and retrieve motorcycles like those seen on Instagram. While some sites have drawn information, that led police to stolen bikes and those responsible. More and more sites appear to be used for boasting and from those seeking recognition. Motorcycle Madhouse on Spotify and iTunes Radio. Ah, the law license of Firebrand, Houston attorney who won a mistrial in the only Twin Peaks shootout case to go to trial has been suspended by the State Bar of Texas. We'll also be having more on this on the Madhouse on Monday. Casey Gotro will be unable to practice law for three years and must pay $59,000 in restitution to clients she failed to serve, the state board announced Monday. The decision comes a year after Gotro and Dallas attorney Clint Broden won the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association Percy Foreman Lawyers of the Year Award for their representation of bikers in the deadly 2015 showdown at the former Twin Peaks restaurant in Waco. And she is a firebrand. We had her on for an interview. She's awesome. Gocho represented Jacob Carzile, president of the Dallas Bandidos chapter, in 2017 trial, but the sanctions do not appear to be related to that case. 
Gotro did not respond to a message left through Thomas Lane, her co-counsel in Carzile's trial. A previous phone number listed in Gotro's name was out of service on Monday. And just to put this out there, that case was hell on her. During the Carzile proceedings, Gotro and former McClellan County District Attorney Abel Reyna's office constantly butted heads over defense access to evidence in the case. Gotro succeeded in getting 19th State District Judge Ralph Struther recused from Carzal's case based on the question of the judge's ability to be fair in the case. And <laughs> we all know them judges were uh, something else down there. Carzal's trial was delayed on at least three occasions after Gotro uncovered evidence that Reyna's office should have turned over to the defense before trial, but did not do so. Yeah, we know how Abel Reyna was, don't we? During one of the revelations, an angry Gotro stormed out of the courtroom during a break calling back over her shoulder that the DZA's office failure to disclose evidence was criminal. You can actually see that on uh, YouTube of that. Herzl's trial ended in a mistrial in November of 2017 when the jury could not reach a unanimous verdict in any of the three counts against Carzal. Prosecutors have since dismissed the charges against Carzal and the other 154 bikers indicted in the deadly shootout that left 9 dead and 20 injured. Not to mention they don't talk about the cops' uh, liability in here. Anyway, Gontro 46 withdrew as Carzal's attorney after the trial, saying she was going to take a break from practicing law. She insisted there was no conflict between her and Carzel, but she said she handled the case for free, was only paid $8,000 for a portion of her expenses and fees from a Bandito's defense fund and just could not afford to take on a retrial. She shouldn't have been expected to do that either. Anyway... Carzell said Monday by phone that he did not file the grievances that led to Gotro's suspension. I hope not because, yeah, we'll just get into it on uh, the Madhouse. According to the state's bar, public release about the attorney disciplinary actions, Gotro was suspended for three years in one case, had a suspension probated in another case, and received a partially probated suspension in a third. Yeah, this ain't added up. She got an award uh, previous. Yeah, details of the cases and clients were not disclosed. In the case for which the bar suspended Gotro for three years, a bar grievance committee found that she, quote, neglected the legal matter entrusted to her, failed to keep her client reasonably informed about the status of the legal matter and failed to promptly comply with reasonable requests for information. They also go on to say she failed to hold funds belonging in whole or in part to a third party that were in Gotro's possession in connection with the representation separate from her own property. Something fishy going on in the background and it ain't her to properly deliver to a third person funds that they were entitled to receive. Also, the bar charged that upon termination of representation, Gotra also failed to refund advance payments of fees that had not been earned and failed to timely respond to the Office of Chief Disciplinary Counsel. <laughs> Why? You guys are all stacked on, uh, uh, again, Monday, we'll talk about this. In that case, Gotro was ordered to pay $40,000 in restitution and $895 in attorney's fees and expenses. In the case in which the state bar suspended her license for six months and probated the remaining six months, 
the allegations were nearly the same as the other case. Gotro was ordered to pay $9,000 in restitution and $816 in attorney fees. Notice how they're just leveling them fees up. In the case that was fully probated, the bar charged that Gotro failed to keep her client informed, which I really doubt. Failed to return papers and property to her client after her termination and failed to refund payments she had not earned. She was ordered to make $10,000 in restitution and pay $1,734 in attorney fees. Again, we will have more about Casey on Motorcycle Madhouse about this. Now, from Fox News, and this is awesome news for everybody out there, a jury found decorated Navy SEAL Edward Eddie Gallagher not guilty Tuesday on almost all charges he was facing, including murder and attempted murder in the killing of a teenage Islamic State member in Iraq. That is awesome, awesome stuff. Not guilty, not guilty, awesome. Gallagher was accused of stabbing to death a 15-year-old ISIS fighter in 2017 and posing with the corpse for photos. They did a lot worse than the other words, let me tell you. As he was awaiting the charges to be read, Gallagher 40 bounced lightly on his feet, appearing nervous, but dissolved into joyful tears once the verdict came through, tightly embracing his wife, Andrea, who has publicly championed him throughout the case as they both cried. You can actually see the interview on Motorcycle Madhouse with Eddie's brother. Also seated in the gallery were Gallagher's attorneys, brother and parents, all of whom he exchanged hugs. He should have never been in this position in the first place. I'm happy and I'm thankful, Gallagher told reporters after the verdict as he joked with his legal team that it's Independence Day, his freedom coming days before the July 4th holiday. Suffice to say, huge victory, huge weight off the Gallagher's, huge victory for justice. This according to Gallagher's attorney Mark Muscassi said adding that his client cried tears of joy, emotion, freedom, absolute euphoria, and proud of the process. Let's just hope that the uh, fourth charge with the posing don't get him a dishonorable because that would be a travesty. Travesty of what's that. Anyway, after being tortured uh, by the government that my husband fought for for 20 years, she, uh, this is according to his wife, she uh, also said she intends to continue to fight for the war of heroes of this country and hopes to see Naval Special Warfare Group 1st Com Ca uh, Commodore Captain Matthew D. Rosenblum resign, among other things. Yes, he does. He does. He faced seven criminal charges in all. Six of the most serious charges included premeditated murder while fully discharging a firearm to endanger human life, retaliation against members of his platoon for reporting his alleged actions, rats, obstruction of justice, and the attempted murders of two non-combatants. All of those charges, the jury in San Diego found him not guilty. Oh my God, there is justice in this country. Jurors did find him guilty of the seventh charge posing for a photo with a casualty considered the least egregious of the crimes, which carries a maximum prison sentence of four months. Now this is where I worry about that dishonorable discharge, man. He don't need one. He fought for 20 years for us. We have a sentencing to do, but the maximum sentence of what they're about to sentence him on is much less than the time that they've already had him in the brig. Defense attorney Tim Pilottery said, so he's going home. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. 
Gallagher served nine months in prison awaiting trial, but was released ahead of trial proceedings at the end of May as the judge attempted to rectify alleged (laughs) prosecutors doing misconduct. Oh, that's a surprise. Which included the unauthorized tracking of the defense's emails. No, not that. Nearly a dozen members of Gallagher's platoon testified against him. That's messed up. Revealing that nearly all the platoon members posed for photos with the dead prisoner and witness Gallagher read his enlistment oath near the body. Actions, prosecutors said, proved that Gallagher was proud of his actions. You guys do know what ISIS used to do to people. I'm just letting the audience know right there, right? Perhaps the biggest bombshell in the case occurred on June 20th when Gallagher's colleague, Special Operator First Class Corey Scott, admitted, he admitted, to smothering the ISIS fighter back in 2017. Contrary to the testimony of at least seven uh, other SEALs who said Gallagher stabbed the ISIS fighter after medics administered treatment to him, ultimately resulted in the teenager's death. He's an ISIS fighter. That's war. Gallagher, who served 19 years in the Navy and earned a bronze star with V for Valor twice and other unit accommodations and a trio of Navy and Marine Corps achievement medals has publicly been championed by his wife and even President Trump, who previously got Gallagher removed from the brig and transferred to better custody conditions at a naval hospital before trial. Now, don't let him dishonorably discharge this man. Nuh-uh, don't let it happen, uh, POTUS. Let's everybody keep fighting for him. By Michelle Brown, a former Blakey convicted over the 1984 Milpira massacre in which a teenage girl was shot and killed has been cleared to work with children by a Sydney court. If you guys don't know what that massacre was, look it up. The man who can only be identified as DPO was at the shootout between members of the Comancheros and the Banditos Motorcycle Club, which left the girl and six bikies dead and many others seriously injured. He had become a club member just two weeks before the deadly shootout at the Viking Tavern in Milpera in Sydney Southwest. This was during the 80s. The gun battle during a motorcycle show in the car park on Father's Day was the culmination of bad blood within the Comancheros that had caused some members to leave and form the Banditos Club in 1983. They actually got a a series on YouTube about this. DPO was among 43 people originally charged with seven counts of murder under the doctrine of common purpose. Don't know what that is. Gotta ask an Aussie. Charges against 10 were uh, were, uh, subsequently dropped and it became the longest joint criminal trial in the state's history. In a judgment, the Administrative Appeal Tribunal, Tribunal, guys, on Thursday ruled his conviction over the 14-year-old girl's death should not disqualify him from being granted a working with children clearance. And they got a lot of weird laws over there in Oz. The court heard DPO did not accept his conviction for a fray and manslaughter arising from the September 2nd, 1984 massacre. The applicant has yet to recognize the seriousness of his conduct or accept responsibility for it, the judgment said. Instead, He has a long-standing sense of injustice 
and anger about what he perceives to be misconduct, victimization, and injustice. And he inappropriately sought to minimize to the tribunal his involvement and responsibility for the offense associated with the disqualifying event. I just can't get over the tribunal. Tribunal. It's not a court, a tribunal. The tribunal found several matters weighed in his favor, including his extensive achievements in education since the offenses, his pro-social careers and pastimes since release from prison, and his devotion to and support of his children. DPO, who represented himself before the tribunal, was seeking the clearance to be able to continue to coach junior rugby union teams. So this was all, uh, okay, I get it now. I get it, I get it. A character reference from one of the DPO's rugby associates described him as a passionate advocate for the sport. You know what? I got to learn what rugby it is. It looks cool. In his role as a coach, I personally witnessed DPO shape what could have been described as a bunch of highly charged, inexperienced individual ball runners into a cohesive and effective team of extremely lovable boys. As a parent, I felt completely comfortable with DPO in his role as a coach and mentor to both my boys. The office of uh, the guardian or the children's guardian was restrained by legislation from granting the working with children clearance, but supported DPO's application for a court order to enable one to be granted. That's good news for him, man. Sounds like he's getting his life turned around and stuff like that. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Need your daily dose of biker news? Then what are you waiting for? Visit HarleyLiberty.com and keep up to date with all the happenings in the biker scene. And wait! There's more. Insane Throttle Biker News is now on Instagram. Come on over and give us a follow and get special video content not seen elsewhere on the net. Just type in Insane Throttle Biker News in the search bar. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7, 24-7. Josh Wood in Laconia, New Hampshire. He's their man. Why do bikers love Trump so much? There he is. The President of the United States sitting astride a motorcycle in a leather jacket in front of the Capitol, a rifle in hand. There he is again, once more, leather clad, both of his middle fingers extended as he stands on the southern border. The words written on the t-shirts and denim vests alongside the imaginary biker version of Donald Trump exude similar vibes. Finally, someone with balls. Talk shit, spit blood. Trump 2020 the wall is coming. At Laconia, New Hampshire's annual motorcycle week, the oldest such rally in the nation, apparel supporting Trump is on sale everywhere you look. Liam Andrews, an 18-year-old who was working at a vendor tent that had perhaps the most formidable showcase of Trump shirts, doesn't care much for politics. But he does know one thing. The Trump at its core, American biker subculture is rooted in the ideal of rebellion. Against society's norms and against authority, it is a brash individualism of saying and doing what you want despite what others think. In Trump, many bikers have found an unlikely idol, a non-biker real estate billionaire who nevertheless paints himself as a rebel outsider and disruptor. 
I think they like his crudeness, his rudeness, said Bill Thompson, a long-lying, uh, long-life uh, biker who is a professor of sociology at Texas A&M Commerce, where he studies motorcycle culture. you got to study it. At rallies like Laconia, where tens of thousands gather along the shore of Lake Winnipeesky, every June support for Trump is easy to find. For most of the summer, Laconia's Weir's Beach is a family-friendly destination, a time capsule of nostalgia, replete with arcades, a lakeside boardwalk, and one of the nation's few remaining drive-in movie theaters. But for a week, every June, Weir's Beach is transformed as bikers descend here for the largest motorcycle rally in the Northeast. The language is foul! <laughs> the wardrobe is leather, engines are loud, as is the music, booze flows freely, tense cell chaps, and vests with gun pockets. You can smoke where you like for the most part. There are daily wet t-shirt contests in the most raunchous bar. Men, men pay women in lingerie to spank their bare bottoms with a paddle. And for a state so far north that it borders Canada... There are a surprising number of Confederate flags on clothing. Oh my God, there's that. A sign of the links some bikers have with white supremacy. You are so full of crap. By and large, bikers are an aging demographic, and at times it can feel like spring break for baby boomers, a time and place where the generally accepted rules of society do not apply. You can tell who's writing this, right? Shirts sell more than anything else. By the time Laconia's Bike Week came to an end last month, his store had sold out of its most popular t-shirt, which read, Trump 2020, because blink your feelings. <laughs> most of the bikers here hate liberals, he said. Well, yeah. It is among these holdout rebels that Trump has found a wellspring of support. Personally, I think it's because he's for the commoner. He wants to make sure everyone gets a fair shake, says Vince Kenyon, 53, who is wearing a leather Bikers for Trump bus while smoking a cigar. When they see someone doing good, bikers will come together and support that person. Others echoed that sentiment. I don't think he's one of those bikers, said Gal, a 59-year-old writer from Massachusetts who was browsing Trump apparel and asked that her surname not be used for fear of losing business in her home, Blue State. He's just in touch with the blue-collar people. While Thompson sees reasons as to why bikers are attracted to Trump, he says the overall support still seems somewhat baffling. Only would it be to a liberal. I would almost guarantee you Trump has never even sat on a motorcycle in his life, he said. Yet you go to a rally and these badass bikers are wearing t-shirts, they've got stickers, caps, and decals. He's their man. Back when he was still the host of The Apprentice, Donald Trump actually did sit on a bike when the bike makers from the Discovery Channel show American Chopper made him a custom motorcycle. Predictably, it was gold and had his name on it. However, Trump is admittedly not a biker and in 2017 recounted how he turned down an offer to ride Harley-Davidson bikes brought to the White House by the manufacturer. Other politicians have more actively engaged the biker lifestyle. Trump's former rival, the late Arizona Senator John McCain, addressed bikers at the Sturgis rally during his 28th presidential run. <laughs> Canary. Trump's Vice President Mike Pence has frequently taken part in motorcycle rides and even named his dog Harley. But none saw the worship from bikers that Trump does. It's all about attitude, said Randy McBee, an associate professor of history 
at Texas Tech University and the author of Born to be Wild, The Rise of the American Motorcyclist. He's got this sort of no-shit-taking kind of attitude that fits in with the image of the outlaw biker. All these professors out there, right guys? Right-wing ideals, he added, have been popular in biker circles for a long time, but in Trump they found somebody to person. Oh my God, with these people. Bill Hayes, a California biker who has written a number of books on motorcycle culture and outlaw motorcycle clubs, says conservative candidates have always been attractive to bikers, but that Trump's flamboyance has resulted in an equally flamboyant embrace. <laughs> He's from Cali, remember that. A lower-key uh, politician that embraces the ideals, would we like him or not here? Yeah, he said, but in this case, it's also over the top that the support is over the top. The biker love has not gone on return. Trump has repeatedly hailed the Bikers for Trump group, which is now a political action committee, and painted them as key allies. I have the support of the police, the support of the military, and the support of the Bikers for Trump, he told the conservative website Breebart in March. I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they get to a certain point, and then... It would be very bad, very bad. <laughs> Trump's statement was read by many as a threat of potential violence against opponents if his administration were cornered. He has also weighed in on biker issues, calling for a boycott of Harley-Davidson last year after the company announced it was shifting some production overseas to avoid the tariffs. This spring... Trump reversed course on the company, calling EU taxes on the bike manufacturer unfair and vowing retaliation. But at Laconia's rally, a world away from trade disputes, Trump remains popular despite his seesaw on the country's most beloved bike brand. Damn liberals, learn how to write, man. The Trump uh, shirts sell everywhere we go, said Rita Farhad, who immigrated to the U.S. from Lebanon nearly 20 years ago and sells biker apparel across the country. Outside her tent on the sidewalk, two topless women, their breasts only slightly obscured with paint and pasties, were offering to pose for photos with passerbys for tips. A stall next door was selling bongs, engine rev, and the tattoo guns whined. The Trump t-shirts continued to sell. Man, cupcakes, get over it, will ya? Man. <laughs> Motorcycle profiling project by Double D. San Antonio police say wearing MC colors in public is a crime. Uh-oh. Motorcycle profiling and is an epidemic in Texas demanding judicial and legislative relief. It appears that the level of unconstitutional absurdity has reached new heights. As captured on video, members of a motorcycle club were cited by officers in San Antonio for disturbing the peace for display in their motorcycle club insignia in public, which the officers considered a public display of gang colors. The officer's actions are outrageous and blatantly unconstitutional under both the First and Fourth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. All officers in San Antonio and throughout Texas should immediately or cease and desist from any further illegal searches or seizures and citizens based on the fact that a person is riding a motorcycle wearing motorcycle club Related insignia. He goes on to say, motorcycle profiling an epidemic in Texas. Yes, it is. This incident in San Antonio is only one of the most recent incidences documented and reported across the state. According to the 2018 National Motorcycle Profiling Survey Executive Summary, Texas is among the worst states for reported incidences of profiling in America, 
The 2018 MPS confirms the wide-held belief among motorcyclists in Texas that incidents of profiling have dramatically proliferated since the Twin Peaks tragedy that occurred on May 17, 2015. The 2018 MPS shows a 100% increase in the percentage of survey participants reporting incidents of profiling in Texas since 2013. The impact on civil liberties, being stopped and cited for wearing a motorcycle club colors under the guise of disturbing the peace would be laughable if it weren't actually happening. Wearing motorcycle club colors in public has been recognized by federal courts as expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment. Moreover, Wearing motorcycle club colors is not reasonably suspicion of a traffic infraction or criminal activity. The minimal threshold for a seizure under the Fourth Amendment, independent of this obvious misapplication of statute, profiling incidences take many forms and impact a wide array of civil liberties Motorcycle club members with a legal license to carry have been arrested for possession of legal firearms simply for being a member of a motorcycle club. Club members have been stopped and threatened with jail if they did not submit to having every tattoo on their bodies photographed against their consent. Unfortunately, the fact that these attacks on civil liberties impact well-established rights and fly in the face of well-established judicial precedent has not been a deterrent to law enforcement. Video is critical to fighting back. The video captured in San Antonio could be a critical piece of evidence demonstrating the essential facts required to successfully defend against the infraction and maybe file an injunction against the practice of stopping and or citing a person for wearing motorcycle club colors. The facts are all contained in a short video, which you can see on the Profile and Projects website. The individuals in the video are being cited for disturbing the peace because wearing motorcycle club colors is displaying gang colors in public. <laughs> yeah, I hate to live down in Texas, man, I'm telling you. For a state that's supposed to be so free, yeah, it's not so free down in Texas, man. Uh-uh, uh-uh, not so free. Anyway, that is your biker news, and with that, I'll catch you later. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Motorcycle Madhouse. Don't forget to go over to the Insane Throttle's new YouTube channel and also get your daily dose of biker news every morning at HarleyLiberty.com. If you haven't done so already, go like the new Motorcycle Madhouse Facebook page. And until next week, I'm James Hollywood Machikari. And remember, keep that throttle cracked wide open.